Our reading from the New Testament this morning is taken from the book of Galatians, beginning in chapter 5 and verse 19 and extending to verse 5 of chapter 6. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. If you looked at the worship online, perhaps, before coming in today, you will notice that musically our worship is centered around two psalms. Psalm 73, which we just sang, and Psalm 49. Um... They are similar in some ways. In Psalm 49, when we get there and sing it, we're going to see a man who is tempted to be intimidated by the wicked. He will point out the wicked's power and might and the fact that it certainly looks like in this life the wicked have all the nice toys and he might recoil in terror from them. But ultimately, he does not. He does not give in to that temptation, but he has to turn and look to God and look to the power that God possesses. He has to look in faith to avoid that temptation. In Psalm 73, you don't have a man tempted to envy. You have a man who is absolutely in envy. He has passed the temptation stage. And he looks at the wicked and their power, and specifically all their wealth, pomp, and circumstance, and he falls into envy of them and bitterness about them. How can they have all the power, all the toys, all the health, while the righteous don't seem to have any of that? He is clearly in that sin of envy. But just like the psalmist in Psalm 49, who ultimately looks to God and to his uh, attributes and eternal verities, 
he will as well, he will go into the temple and he will look at the uh, ceremonial, the, the sacramental images that he can see in the temple that talk about God's eternal blessings of his people and he will repent of his sin, of envy of the wicked. But he will have to get there. He will have to go into God's presence. He will have to look at eternal things. God will have to work by these means to bring him to repentance. Our psalmist begins in sin. And the psalmist of Psalm 49 begins in temptation. They are powerful psalms, and they are inspiring. Because they touch us where we live. Have you ever been intimidated? by evil? Have you ever envied evil? Uh, I can't speak for any of you, but I can speak for me, and I've been in both places. And so it really talks to me, because God knows what's going on in me, and his spirit talks to me. But there is a profound element woven into the creation of both of these psalms that may not just immediately jump to your thoughts, but is fairly profound God uses means to produce his ends. And this means he, in most instances, in almost most instances of his revelation, he has revealed himself in the circumstances that people have found themselves in. Now, make no mistake, God sends everything. He sends the circumstances, he gives you your next heartbeat, but he reveals his covenant to people who are living, they are living certain circumstances, and God speaks into and through those circumstances. In this particular case, God brought his revelation to us, to his church, through the lives of two men, one of whom was wrestling with temptation, one of which wasn't wrestling at all, he was totally pinned to the ground. God brought these psalms to us through less than perfect circumstances. And especially in the case of the psalmist in Psalm 73, God even used his sinful estate, which he would later repent of, to do God's will, which was to give us the psalm. God worked through the estate of men, including even their sinfulness. If God had not done that, you wouldn't have Psalm 73 to sing. Because God brought his revelation through a man who was in sin at the beginning, had to repent in the middle, and found the joy of God in the end. There is a segment of the Christian church that finds our catechism to be scandalous. And specifically, question 114 and 115. This comes right after we've gone through the, the Ten Commandments. We've, we've looked at what all it means. And uh, we have been told that this is the, the gold standard of perfection. Then we get to 114 and 115. Can those who are converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? The answer is no, but even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of such obedience. 
yet so that with earnest purpose they begin to live not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. That's one of the real gems in the Catechism, by the way. Um, Are you made morally perfect in Christ? Well, not at this moment. But the Spirit begins to work upon you and begins to work upon you in all God's righteousness so that if you say, I'm a believer, but, you know, commandments 3, 6, and 10, I don't really do. Uh, Well, the Spirit works on you for all God's commandments. But you only begin a small portion of sanctification in this life. Uh, You will live this life however long you live, and you're still going to wrestle with sin, and you're still going to at times fail in that sin. And there is a large section of the church which says this is scandalous. How dare you tell people that they are going to continue in sin after they have become Christians? Doesn't that do the work of the devil? Doesn't that encourage them to embrace their sinfulness? Well, that brings us to question 115, and for the people we are talking to, it brings a lot more scandal. Why then does God so strictly enjoin the Ten Commandments upon us, since in this life no one can keep them? Answer, first, that as long as we live, we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature, and so the more earnestly seek forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, that without ceasing, we may diligently ask God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may be renewed more and more after the image of God until we attain the goal of perfection after this life. Now, again, these are are, are wonderful statements of God's truth, but it's heard by some as you're saying God will even work in your sin. You will be sinful, and God will, for his own purposes, use the very fact of your sin to do what he wills and ultimately break his glory. Is that what we're saying? The answer is yes, that is what we are saying. And I understand why they would see it as scandalous. Sin is sin. It is dark, it is evil. God's revealed moral will is that he hates sin. I have no problem with someone saying this is a shocking teaching. But it is nevertheless the truth. If the psalmist in Psalm 73 hadn't been in sin and hadn't repented and hadn't been brought to the other side where he knew God's goodness and glory, we wouldn't have that psalm. And God gave it to us as divine revelation, which means here is an objective moment where God used a man's sin to actually work ultimately his glory. God can and does do that. God's decretal will is that he has decreed everything that's going to happen. Uh, We will be sanctified in this life. We will not be perfect until we see our Lord Christ Perfection comes then. 
to hear the words of another of the apostles, turning to the apostle John, uh, John puts it very straightforward in this way. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. To break that down a little bit, we are different from the world as night is day. We are, however, not perfected yet. We are looking forward to when we shall see Christ, not, not some human imitation of Christ, not some product of human imagination, but we shall actually see the Lord Christ. He shall return, and in seeing him, we shall be made like him at that moment. And because we have this hope in us, that's the very reason why we seek with God's grace to grow in purity, because we are looking forward to that day. But that day has not come yet. Paul puts it in similar fashion, although... Uh, you might say it's a little bit more of a positive spin, when he writes to the church in Philippi, and he says to them in chapter 1, verse 3 through 6, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the immediate audience for the book of Philippians is the, church, the Christians living in Philippi 2,000 years ago. And Paul says, I am convinced concerning you 2,000-year-old people that God will work in you until the day of Christ. He will sanctify you, he will build you, he will be edifying you until Christ returns, which could theoretically be another 2,000 years, or 20 minutes. But it hadn't happened yet. And Paul says to these people who lived 2,000 years ago, God is going to continue to sanctify you until Christ comes. So there is clearly a picture in Scripture that perfection comes when we look in the face of Christ when that happens, all sin will be done away with, all rebellion, uh, all evil will be separated from us. I don't know about you, but I have trouble even imagining what that will be like. I am so used to being in this sin-saturated world uh, to still have my crucified yet taunting sinful nature that I can't imagine what it will be like to honestly be totally devoid of sin and depravity. I am looking forward to it. This is going to be God's gift to me in Christ in a way I can't even experience now. But it is not now. It is final redemption 
It is the Christian's longing and hope. And yet, though this is taught in Scripture, it is never taught in such a way as the Christian or the church should be encouraged to become complacent with or accommodating to sin. Rather, the very fact this is true should drive us to hate it more and to fight it more. When the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote to that congregation in chapter 12, he begins the chapter having just shown us all of these people who have walked in the Lord Christ before us, and this is his admonition as we go into the chapter. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the apostles, while telling us you're not going to be morally perfect in this life, in their next breath say, look at what God is doing, look at what he has done with people throughout history in Jesus, because of what you see God doing, be stirred up and throw off sin, throw off everything that will trip you, run with endurance, especially look to the Lord Christ, whose run in this world was perfect and becomes the moral standard for the Christian's call to obedience. So it's a very balanced message in the New Testament. Turns out you're not perfect in this life. You were told that was going to happen. You are never to be complacent with it, and your church is not to be complacent with it either. I have a friend who ended up being called into the ministry. Um, He was a little older than me, and he was, uh, for most of his life, uh, an absolute cad. Uh, that's not the term that came to mind, but I'm in the pulpit. Um, he was converted late in life, but we grew up in the same church, and uh, he honestly was, was a cad. And at one point, the elders of our church decided to gently try to rebuke him, and he looked back at the elder and had, in all sincerity, the ability to say, How dare you call me on the carpet? I know everything about you. And he did. And we all did. Because we were in a mainline Reformed church where sin was simply swept under the rug 95% of the time. But that didn't mean we didn't know about it. We just didn't talk about it. There is no call in Scripture to complacency about sin at all. The church itself is called to confront sin. Uh, We talk about that under the term of church discipline, and the church is called to practice it. But church discipline is far broader than we usually use the term. When I use the term church discipline, you're probably thinking of someone who is in notorious sin, it's come to the church's attention, the elders have had to deal with it, they're not going to repent, So the congregation ultimately has to excise them from the church. That is church discipline, 
But that is actually church discipline at its latest, latest stage. That's not actually where you want church discipline to go to. Church discipline is actually teaching. I am right now actually, from a biblical point of view, disciplining you. And me, because I have to listen to myself talk too. In teaching the Word of God, that's really the kind of the first step of discipline. The Word of God is the final authority on what our life, our thought, our desire should be. When we hear it, when it is expounded, we are being disciplined like a child is disciplined by a father. We're being discipled. We are being raised up, and this is church discipline. When you gently rebuke someone because they do need it, but you are gentle and very low-key, that's actually church discipline because you've seen your brother in need and you have gone to minister to him. That's church discipline. It's just another form of it. But the church is called to practice it. Having looked at these things, uh, what can we deduce from them? Well, I've got eight things that we can deduce. The first one is that believers in this life can and sometimes will fall into sin. That is a comforting message, if you are you, and it is also an admonition concerning your brother. Just because you have seen your fellow churchmen slip into sin, to backslide, to use the old term, does not mean that they are not believers. It does not mean that they have at that moment demonstrated they are not in Christ. If that were the standard, we'd all be unconverted. Number two, well, I really already dealt with this. This happens without them ceasing to be believers. Number three, God may in his good pleasure even work in the backslidden by the conditions of his sin to ultimately further sanctify him. Remember the psalmist that we talked about. God is sovereign, and he is even sovereign over backsliders. He will do his will in his way. Uh, Do you think that you can slide out of the hand of God? Do you think that if God has laid hold upon you, you will accidentally fall from his hand? That's not going to happen. Number four... Number three is the prerogative of God alone, however. It's not for an individual or the Christian church. When Paul asks about how we should deal with this sort of issue, uh, the, the, kinda, the, 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 the quintessential answer is in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is, by no means. And if you go back into the original, there is a force to that that is very difficult to translate. It is a very forceful statement. Should you consider yourself and say, you know, God's gracious, I'll just sin. By no means. With a canon. God can use a sinner and even turn his sin around to his glory. That is not a human thing to do. It's not yours. You can't do it. Only God alone can do that. 
Number five, the call of faith is to love God, and this love will work the works of God, uh, which are opposite to sin. We have already passed through chapter 5 and verse 6, where Paul effectively summed up the Christian life as faith working by love. That's going to happen in the believer. Anyone who says, you know, God will be glorified in my sins, I'm not going to worry about it. Well, that's not loving God. You're not working the works of God. You're not demonstrating the existence of faith. Faith will work by love. Number six, it is the prerogative of the assembly, the church, to work to help and restore the believer who has fallen into sin. It is actually our duty to be our brother's keeper. If you have ever used the proverb, am I my brother's keeper, do you know who you're quoting? It's the first murderer. You know, it's kind of like saying, you know, I, I got my ethics from Charles Manson. It, it's not a proverb to quote. We are our brother's keeper, and we are to minister in the context of the assembly to one another in official ways. Um, the assembly is made up of human beings, though, who possess just as much of weakness and temptation to sin as anybody being ministered to. It is, but by the grace of God, if you're not the one who has fallen into sin, you're the one called to restore them. The only thing that makes you different is God's grace has not allowed you to go there. So you're working with somebody exactly like you, and it could be you next time. As Reformed Christians, we know there is no sin but what we could fall into. In the majority of the Christian church, you'll hear people say, well, now, everybody's sinful, but there are sins I would never fall into. You know, there are sins you may be less inclined to, but honestly, you are capable of any wanton crime the way we pray. There is no sin you are not capable of, and without the grace of God, you're going to go there. So if church discipline is taking place, uh, you're ministering to somebody just like you. And it could be you. In the Christian himself, he is a nobody in these matters. There is no strength in flesh to really oppose sin. You are not a competitor in this fight at all. The competitors are the spirit and the flesh. The flesh has quite a bit of power to do evil, and the spirit has infinite power to restrain it. But you, the person, you're a nobody. And you need to remember that. If you feel that you are morally superior to someone who is needing to be admonished, you have already totally failed at this game. Now, why do I bring up all of these particular things. Well, it's because in our passage before us, we see Paul summing up his message and calling the church to admonish those who have fallen into sin. He has put before us two major sins that he has been dealing with. 
one of which is the sin of the religion of work of the flesh. That is the major sin he has been working with. It is a sin to trust in your own works is inherently de facto a sin. It is not a doctrinal weakness. It is not a matter of Christian philosophy. To trust in your own works is a sin before a holy God. And Paul has warned us of this, but he has also added a second sin, and that is the sin of smugness. If you feel that you are morally superior to those who are obviously in sin, guess what? You have just demonstrated you're on the same level. And in this passage, Paul will return to that again. He has, he's worked with sin, and he's calling on the church to bring about church discipline to restore those who have fallen into sin. This is what Christ's enacted parable when he washed the disciples' feet is all about. In that strange passage in the Gospel of John, whenever a minister gets there and preaches on it, the people get really afraid because he might actually want them to take their shoes off and wash each other's feet, and that would be really weird. Uh, the meaning tends to get lost. When Christ washed his disciples' feet, he was doing something that actually took place all the time. But it took place generally by servants doing it. As you lived in the desert and as you walked in the dusty streets and when you came into the house, even though you had bathed that day, in your walking, you had gotten your feet dirty, and that was an issue. Uh, y'all want to defend your carpets? Well, you know, it goes way back. And so when people come into the house, they need their feet washed, but washing people's feet was not exactly a glamorous job. It was assigned to the nobodies, the, the house servant, or perhaps the children, if you didn't have servants, because most didn't. But it was the nobodies, the little people. You, you wash people's feet, and they need it done. Well, Christ put aside his robes and he washed our feet, showing us by the doing of this what church discipline is really about. And again, church discipline is not, you know, they're living in sin, so we put them out. It goes all the way back to teaching, it goes all the way back to admonishment, it goes back to counseling, it goes back to enduring with one another. All of that is actually washing the feet of the saints. And the Lord Christ, who is our Lord, humbled himself and washed human beings' feet and was showing by this the attitude that we who are not the Lord ought to have. If Jesus the Lord will wash disciples' feet, then you should wash feet with the attitude of a servant, because that's the attitude our Lord took. We are called to sanctify one another, to minister to one another, to admonish one another, and that is what verse 1 through 5 in chapter 6 is all about. Allow me to read it again. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. 
considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. I have front-ended this message uh, systematically to build a foundation for what is fairly a straightforward teaching. Minister to one another, get involved in one another's lives, that is the call of God, but do it seeking the redemption of the one who has fallen, and do it in a proper spirit, um, it really is very straightforward. Although there are a few things we might want to look at. The first one is, what does it mean, you who are spiritual? In today's environment, that term needs a little explaining. We have a world filled with people who say, I'm not religious, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm really into spiritual things. I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm cosmic, you know, I'm, I'm just like, you know, out there. That's not what Paul is talking about at all. That is not how he's using the term. And he has laid out how he's using the term just a few verses back. If you go back into chapter 5 and you look at verse 25, Paul says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit of God. It is the third person of the Trinity, He has made himself available to us, and we have been brought to spiritual new life in him. The Spirit has given us life as we are in him. He is in us. But now that we're alive, we are called to walk in him, and it is put in such a way that not every believer is going to be seen to be doing that, which is really, really unfortunate. But it is very definitely a possibility. The spiritual person, according to Paul, is the one who walks in the Spirit. And Paul demonstrates what that's going to look like when he talks about the fruits of the Spirit. How can you tell the Spirit is in your life or in the life of somebody else? Well, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the evidence of the Spirit being present. Not that you can lay hands on sick people and they get well, not that special effects take place, but the Spirit begins to sanctify a person's life so that they have love. They are faithful to God. They are joyful. They are humble. They are under self-control. You know, somebody like that I would take it as an honor to be admonished by. And in fact, I have been admonished by such people, and I took it as an honor. The spiritual person is the one walking in the Spirit. You who are submissive to the Spirit, you do the admonishing to those who aren't walking in the Spirit. Second of all, uh, we need to really take to heart the attitude that Paul describes those doing admonishment should have. He talks about humility. 
which is about the last thing I feel when somebody's got me mad at them, which is very, very likely to happen if I'm in a situation where I'm admonishing someone. That is the very moment gentleness is needed. And that's why I directed you to Christ in washing feet. It is what it means, and you see the Lord Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who commands all the armies of heaven, he is gentle, washing the feet of his, his servants. Paul here hammers at home. You who are spiritual, admonish. You who are spiritual, discipline. But do it with proper gentleness. Because um, remember that somebody and nobody language? I used it on purpose. Because Paul used it. And Paul is not speaking in the hypothetical. If you go back and look at the original language, when Paul says, now if somebody thinks they're somebody and they're nobody, that's not written with the Greek word that means, well, now this is a hypothetical thought. It's written with the Greek word that means, if this happens, and it's happening. Uh, We are nobody in the cosmic struggle of good and evil. Uh, The way C.S. Lewis described it is, imagine that you are at the siege of Leningrad, and the Russian and German armies are drawn up together to fight for the fate of humanity. Now imagine a fly that is buzzing on the wall of a building in Leningrad. You are less than that. We are nobody. Paul doesn't make this hypothetical. He says, in the fight with good and evil, you are nobody. And remember that. God uses means, he may use you, but God is at work using you, you nobody. And if you think you somebody, you're doing this wrong. The fourth thing we got to look at is verse 2 and verse 5. Has it ever struck you as odd that in verse 2, Paul says, bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ, and then in verse 5 he says, let each one bear his own load? Uh, how can you say that? How, you know, if, if I have to bear my own load, why is it I can help my neighbor with his load? And if I have to bear my own load... Why would I help him? That doesn't even seem fair. There's a, an interesting play on words in the original. Uh, going to my Greek dictionary here, the first word for burden is baros, and by its definition it is a burden or weight that is transferable and thus can be shared by someone else. And the second word in verse 5 is fortarian, which doesn't have any linguistic connection to the first word at all, and it is a burden that is non-transferable and is the personal responsibility of a particular person to whom it is assigned. So in the original, it's not the same word at all. Uh, There are some burdens that men can come along and help you with. And there are some burdens they can't. And we are all like that. We stand before God 
with certain burdens that in this life men can minister to us and our sanctification will uh, ultimately help us overthrow. And then there are burdens that in God's providence, though they are smaller, because the, the Greek term suggests a much smaller burden, they are a burden that you won't get rid of in this life. And Paul is reminding us, as I have tried through this sermon a time or two, if you are admonishing a sinner, remember you're carrying a load you will not throw off until you get to heaven. You have not entered this ministry because you're righteous and they're not. You're carrying something too, and if you don't admit it, you're doing this wrong. But you are called to do it. If you see your brother caught up in a sin, and that may be a moral failing, and it may be a doctrinal failing because to... to trust in your own righteousness is a sin, you are called to admonish them. As Paul has taken us through this book, he has clearly shown us that he does not believe the false teachers are believers. In uh, chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul has called them False brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us again into bondage. That's not language you use for a converted person. But even though they are not converted, they are bringing their wicked ideas to the converted and the converted can be tripped and harmed by them. In the same chapter, chapter 2, Paul talks about the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Barnabas, and this is what he had to say about them. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. You've got to wonder how a Roman Catholic reads that one because they see Peter as the number one guy on earth, and Paul is rebuking the Pope. But, I mean, he is rebuking an Apostle. The Apostle Peter was clearly in the wrong, he was to be blamed, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now, is Paul writing in such a way that he pictures Peter and Barnabas as unconverted? The answer is no, but this influence has harmed them spiritually. They have backslidden. A believer can fall into sin, and Peter and Barnabas had done that, and the church of God had been harmed. So Paul calls the Christian to minister in these cases to the harmed and try to restore them. The last thing we should look at is the attitude of why you're doing admonition. The the goal has to always be sanctification and restoration. The church will always be under attack. Always. And the most dangerous attack it will face will not be from the outside. Persecution will hurt the church. Infiltration will bring it to destruction without the grace of God. 
And infiltration will take place if admonition does not happen. But we are sinners ministering to sinners. We are tools in the hand of a carpenter, God who is building. It is not the righteous reaching out to the unrighteous. It is those who are in grace reaching out to those in grace who need a helping hand. Is there any catechism work that needs to be done at this time? Here is fine. 56, 57, and 58. Okay. How does God justify you? Okay. Uh, how does God sanctify you? God makes me more and more holy in conduct. What must you do to be saved? I must repent of my sin and believe in Christ as my Savior. Very good. Well done. Is there any other catechism work that needs to be done? Hmm? And where are we here? If not, oh, there is, okay. Just start at four and keep going. Okay. How can you glorify God? We may have good advice. We'll do it again later. If there is if there is no other uh, category of work that needs to be done, then please stand and let us make our confession. Christian, what benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits in this life or flow from them. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace where God is received into a number and have a right to all the privileges. 
Please be seated and let us seek the Lord in prayer. We will uh, sing the Lord's Prayer at the end. Lord God, we thank you that just as no man can adopt himself into a human household, we have not adopted ourselves into your household. You have extended your grace to us. You have sought us out. You have brought we orphans into your household. You have been kind to us. Lord, I pray that you would give us to view the world through this lens. Help us to remember that we are your children and we wear your name and all the benefits of it. But we have come to this place by your hand. Father, teach us to be gentle and humble, whether we are wrestling with sin and in need of rebuke, or whether we are extending rebuke and admonition to our fellow man, help us to remember that we did not adopt ourselves, you adopted us. We do not deserve to be in your family, not for one moment and not for any reason, but for the sake of what you have done in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would send such a spirit upon your church, this congregation, and your church wherever it is meeting this morning. We pray that you would sanctify us and give us the courage to speak to sin, to confront sin, to not sweep sin under the carpet, and to care for those who need caring for. I pray, Lord, that you would teach your church to care for its own by being their brother's keeper. We pray that reformation would begin at the house of God and you would sanctify us in belief, in action, and in motivation that the King of kings and Lord of lords of the church might be glorified in us. Father, we pray for our missionaries. We ask that you would sanctify them and strengthen them to their tasks, and you would give them all the fruits of the Spirit that they might be thoroughly equipped to glorify Christ. Father, we pray for our households, and we ask that your Spirit would sanctify each family and household that called to our various stations, we would have the gifts and graces to minister your grace and receive ministry of your grace. Protect our homes, Lord, in the Spirit and by your angels, that they might be the homes of Jacob, outposts of your kingdom, schools of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for those in our hearts right now. We ask that your Spirit would reach out to them and would minister to them in whatever need it is that we are lifting. We pray, Lord, that you would glorify your Son, Jesus, As you answer our prayers, Lord, we pray all these things in the name of him who has taught us to pray.
time we'll take our tithes and offerings. most merciful and gracious God, of whose bounty we have all received, we implore you to accept this offering of your people. Remember in your love those who have brought it and those for whom it is given. Please follow it with your blessing that it may promote peace and goodwill among men and advance the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hear the words of the Holy Gospel taken from St. Matthew. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, in Christ's name, I take these elements, the bread and the wine, to be set apart by prayer and thanksgiving, to the holy use for which he has appointed them. Let us pray together. O God, you have by the blood of your dear Son set apart for us a new and living way into the holiest of all. Cleanse our minds, we implore you, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that drawing near unto you with a pure heart and undefiled conscience, we may receive these your gifts without sin and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The bread which we break is by faith participation in the body of Christ.